one of the things that we've noticed in the book of Jeremiah is when God speaks to the people of Israel, he uses Jeremiah to speak, but also object lessons. We've had several object lessons. One, you know, like the potter's house. Remember that when Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and and then the Lord used the pottery and stuff as an illustration of God being the master potter and Jesus who's the master potter and shaping our lives. And it's a great illustration. Well, we have another one of those illustrations. And again, it might not make a lot of sense to you unless you kind of know a little of the backstory and what's going on in Jeremiah's day. On Wednesday night, we're gonna be looking at Jeremiah 33, 34, and into, you know, late, maybe even after 35. We'll see how far we get. But, but the context is in chapter 34 of Jeremiah, the people of Israel, they're in a bad situation. Babylon's chomping uh, at the bit to, to wipe out Jerusalem. They've already been through two sieges and waves of captivity and persecution, but they're getting ready to face the big one in 586 BC. Jeremiah, um, who's the prophet, who's been telling them, hey, repent of your sins, follow the Lord, but they refused and they were disobedient to God. And, and the more they, they uh, started sinning, the more trouble they found themselves in. And now the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has besieged the city and people are in trouble. Jeremiah's in a dungeon, but he pulls out from 17 years earlier, he pulls out a story that happened, something that he did, and it's meant to be an illustration for the people. In chapter 34, the Lord will indict the people saying, you guys have slaves and you were supposed to set slaves free. By the way, when the Bible speaks on slavery, some people say the Bible condones slavery. Well, that's ridiculous. Bible, God never condones slavery in his word, but he does seek to regulate slavery. And some people perceive that as being condoning it, but it's not. In Bible days, if you were a, a, a people like, let's just make, you know, say like the, the Amalekites and you always wanting to, you know, wipe out Jews. So they were always fighting against the Jews um, or one way or the other, the Jews fighting the Amalekites. Either way, in those days, in Bible times, if you fought somebody, you would either, what do you do when you win the battle? If you beat your opponent, the Amalekites, you've got a bunch of people left over and they want to kill you still. So what do you do? Do you kill them all? Some people did that. Uh, so that they're no longer a problem. Uh, or you, you, you could let them go, but they'll come back to fight another day. And that tend to happen as well. Or you could enslave the people that you fought. And that was oftentimes in Bible times and ancient history, what people, people groups did. You'd fight them and if they lost, you were slaves. Um, and so the Jews did have slaves because they were fighting Amalekites. But God says, I don't want you to keep those slaves. You, you, um, he basically put parameters and said, you need to let them all go after a certain you know, seven year period. And there was the bond slave and there's all kinds of things that were talked about that. But God always sought to regulate slavery. And if you follow the Bible's example, slavery would have eventually been abolished if you follow the word of God and what it says about that. Uh, because I believe slavery obviously is evil and, and, um, and there's times in history that were worse than others, of course. <coughs> but all that to say, the Jews said, okay, Lord, we'll get rid of our slaves. And they did for a while in chapter 34, but then they kind of came back on their deal and they went and got their slaves back. And the Lord said, that's it. You guys are toast. You guys are in trouble because you've sort of, you know, gone back on the deal. You know, you were supposed to obey me and, and free those people and you kept them in slavery. And so the Lord says, that's it, you're toast. And that's where Jeremiah chapter 34 leaves off. 
And we pick up chapter 35 and now the Lord's gonna speak about the, the children's disobedience. And that's hopefully what we start to kind of learn. Let's take a look, Jeremiah chapter 35. We're gonna find in chapter 35, there's two sections. There's, there's an object lesson. First, we have the object, then we have the lesson. The object is uh, gonna be spoken of in ch chapter 35 verses one through 11 and the lesson itself verses 12 through 19. Let's take a look. Normally we take a single verse on our Sundays, but I wanna cover this whole chapter. So strap on your safety belt, here we go. Uh, it says in verse one, the word which came unto Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah saying, go to the house of the Rechabites and speak unto them and bring them into the house of the Lord into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jeaz Atniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habaz Itniah, and his brethren and all his sons and the whole house of the Rehobites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah. For you that are expectant mothers, by the way, some good Bible names for you to <laughs> consider for your children. You know, I, I like uh, Hatzbaaniah or uh, Igdaliah. But the, um, it's interesting, the name Igdaliah, it actually means Yahweh is great or God is great. By the way, have you ever heard Muslims yell, Allahu Akbar? Um, and if you have somebody who's a tourist and they say, what does that mean? They'll say, well, it means God is great. But it doesn't mean that. It means Allah is greater. I hope you know that because, you know, 600 years after Christ, uh, the Muslims came and Muhammad invented his new religion. And he said, and, and that's one of the things they all say is Allah is greater. Greater than who? Jehovah, the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians. Uh, it's a very clear uh, sort of insult to Christianity and to uh, Judaism, um, just so you know. But um, I've noticed that so much of Islam is really borrowed from um, Judaism and Christianity. You'll notice that. And it came 600 years after those two faiths were uh, long well underway. But this is one of those names, um, uh, this, this guy named Igdaliah. His name means God, that is Jehovah, is great. Um, and uh, that's kind of interesting. And it says he was a man of God. That's good de delineation of who this guy was. Which was um, by the chamber of the princes, which was above the chamber of Maseah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. And I set before the sons of the house of Rechabites pots full of wine and cups. And I said unto them, drink ye wine. But they said, we will not, we will drink no wine for Yonadab, our, uh, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, neither ye nor your sons forever. Neither shall you build house, nor sow seed, nor plant vineyard, nor have any, but all your days you shall dwell in tents that you may live many days in the land where you be strangers. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Yonadab, the, the son of Rachav, our father, in that um, he has charged us to drink no wine all our days, we our wives, our sons, and our daughters, nor to build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyard, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed the, uh, and done according to all that Yonadab, the father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans 
and for fear of the army of the Syrians, so we dwelt at Jerusalem. So verses one through 11, we have the object of the lesson, the object, and it's the Rehavites. This is an intense person, group of people. Intense, yes, they live intense, it says here. Um, <clears throat> what's the deal with these people? Sorry, it's the fourth service. I, I get a little weird in this fourth service, but, um, but what is this thing about these people that won't drink wine and they won't live in houses, they only live in tents, and they're there and Jeremiah offers them wine and they say, we're not gonna drink wine. Even though you, Jeremiah, are a prophet of the Lord and we are sitting in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, we're still not gonna drink your wine. Wow. Who are these Rechabites and what does this story have to do with anything? Well, before we get to the, the lesson itself, let's, let's talk about who the Rechabites are. Well, the, the, um, the Rechabites are the sons of Rechab, um, which is, that's the way you say a B in Hebrew, by the way. So it's, we say Rechabites, but it's Rech and the supposed to come from down here. Like, you know, you're kind of hawking a loogie. And, um, and Rechavite, Vite is like V. Um, that's who these people are. Who are they? Well, they're, they're the sons of Rechav. Um, and you say, yeah, but are they Jews? The answer is no. Now, people confuse sometimes the Rechavites with the Jews because they're kind of woven in some of the Jewish stories in history. Uh, there are a few famous uh, Rechavites. One was a, a woman named Jael. I say, Jael with the nail. Remember Jael with the nail? Who, who was she? Well, she's the lady that took a big nail or a tent stake and hammered it through a guy's head to the ground. One of those nice Bible stories for you and your children uh, as you're tucking your kids in at nighttime. Uh, good night, son. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. That, that's probably, you should save that for later. Uh, it is a horrible story in the Bible, but it, this horrible dude, he gets killed by this lady named Jael with a tent stake. She is um, a Kenite who is a descendant of the, or, you know, the Rechabites are descendants of the Kenites. So it's a group of people that we bump into here and there in the Bible, but not much. We really don't know much about the Rechavites, but we know where they started to join the Jews. It goes all the way back to when the Jews were enslaved in Egypt. 450 years were the slaves, the Jews slaves there in Egypt. And when the Lord raised up Moses to deliver the people out of the Pharaoh's hand there in Egypt, um, do you remember what happened? Moses was there for 40 years in Egypt, raised as a prince of Egypt, but then he was sort of excluded out to the backside of the desert where he was with a group of people called the Midianites. The Midianites were the, none other than the Rechavites, the same people, the sons of Rechav, and linked to a group of people called the Kenites. I'm giving you these for you Bible students. You can look all this stuff up if you want to and trace and track, because uh, you can do that if you, if you put some work into it. But do you remember Zipporah, Moses' wife? She was this little shepherd gal that lived out in the backside of the desert. And he married her, Zipporah, who was a Midianite, who was uh, also linked to these Rechavites, not Jews. And, um, and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, some, there's different names for Jethro, by the way, Jethro in the Old Testament. But, um, but he was also not a Jew. But Jethro, if you recall, went with the children of Israel as they left Egypt. And many of the Rechavites traveled with the children of Israel as they left Egypt. And they were called the mixed multitude, some of the people that were non-Jews that were traveling with the children of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. And that's where they picked up these, these little people, this little group of people called the Rechavites. And they stayed with them for hundreds of years, even into the promised land. Fast forward to where the children of Israel <clears throat> make it into the promised land 
And the, uh, some people are living in the new houses that they got there from the Canaanites in the land of promise. But the Rechavites stayed in tents and drank no wine. Why did that happen? Well, one of the, the fathers of the Rechavites that lived in a day uh, during the time of Jehu. Does Jehu ring a bell for you Bible uh, students? Jehu, what was he most famous for, anybody? Jehu? Nobody? Crickets? Tumbleweeds are blowing across the sanctuary as I'm... Jehu was known for road rage. It says he drove furiously. He drove his chariot in a way that people saw him coming miles away and oh, there comes Jehu. He's crazy, man. That guy, like Dukes of Hazard, crazy, like him and his chariot. There's a story where they're looking over the wall going, who's that? Oh, that's Jehu. Look at, he's driving like a madman. That's what, that's what it says. But why was Jehu driving like a madman? Well, he, with another dude, was in the chariot and they were racing toward Jezebel's castle. Do you remember Ahab and Jezebel? They were exceedingly wicked king and queen and Jezebel was like the leader. And she was this wicked kind of witch-like queen who was a worshiper of Baal, this God. And she had all these prophets of Baal and they did all kinds of crazy stuff. And, and she was this evil, wicked woman and Jehu was coming to, to, to uh, you know, take her out. Not on a date, if you know what I mean. So Jehu comes skidding in with his chariot and, and, and she knows he's coming. So she gets all gussied up, puts on her makeup and brushes her tooth. And, um, <laughs> sorry. And she sticks her head out the window. Hey, Jehu, what's up? And Jehu said, who's on my side? Throw her out of the window. And so these two eunuchs said, okay. They grab Je Jezebel. And she hits the pavement and dies there. True story, Jehu runs her over several times with a chariot and then he, uh, it's a long story. Um, another child story for you uh, to tell your kids at night when you're going to bed. Sorry, I don't know why I'm on those stories right now. But there was a guy in the chariot that was passionate also about getting rid of all these, you know, prophets of Baal, Baal worship, Moloch worship, Chemosh, Ashtoreth, all these gods and goddesses that had permeated the Jewish society and they had forsaken the true and living God and worshiped these horrible gods where they literally, some of those gods like Moloch, they would sacrifice their children on the altar to Moloch. So Jehu was passionate along with the dude that was in his chariot. Who was that? a guy named Jonadab. And Jonadab is the guy that these Rechabites refer to. What did Jonadab do? Well, 300 years before Jeremiah does this uh, and sits these guys down and offers them wine in the temple. 600, or 300 years before that, this guy Jonadab, in the time of Jehu and Jonadab, he sat his kids down, John, Jonadab did. He said, hey, you guys, we are Rechabites. You and kids and he said, from this day forward, we will be set apart from all the other people in Israel. We're gonna live in tents, not have houses. We're gonna not have you know, crops and fields or vineyards. We're not gonna even have seeds for vineyards, but we, we will live in tents. And the idea is they would be shepherds, nomads, and they would just kind of live in tents around the Middle East. And, and, and he made his, his kids do that. And what's amazing is his kids said, okay, cool. And so they lived in tents and now fast forward 300 years, those same people are doing the same things. They're only temporarily in Jerusalem because Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonians coming through with his massive army and they're afraid. They said, man, we gotta get into a city with walls. And so they went in and hid out in Jerusalem while they were under siege. 
So Jeremiah now, 300 years after Jonadab tells his kids, we're not gonna drink wine, we're not gonna eat grapes, we're not gonna have farms, we're, not gonna, we're gonna live in tents. They, they were obedient to that for 300 years. Then Jeremiah calls them in and says, hey, have some wine. And they said, we're not gonna do that. Why did Jeremiah do that? Well, that brings us to the lesson itself. The object of the lesson, the Rehabites. What's the lesson itself? Well, let's take a look. Let's read the rest of this chapter. The Lord speaks through Jeremiah in verse 12. Then came the word of the Lord unto Jeremiah saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, will you not receive instruction to hearken to my words, saith the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rehab, that he had commanded his sons not to drink wine are performed. For unto this day they drink none, but they obey their father's commandment. Notwithstanding, I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have hearkened not unto me. I have sent also unto you my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, return ye now every man from his evil way and amend your doings and go not after other gods to serve them. And you shall dwell in the land that I have given to you and to your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear nor hearkened unto me. Because the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them, but this people hath not hearkened unto me. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, uh, the, God, the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring upon Judah and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them because I have spoken unto them, but they have not heard. And I have called unto them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus saith the Lord of God of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and have kept all his precepts and done according to all that he hath commanded you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. That's just hard to say that last sentence. What, that, what does that mean? It's basically saying this, that the Rechabites are gonna live forever. They're gonna, you're gonna have Rechabites on the earth and around the Lord. There'll never be a lack on the earth for a Rechabite because of their faithfulness and their obedience. The Lord commends these people, but these people are the object lesson for the Jews who were living in total rebellion not giving their slaves up and, and clinging to their idols and their false gods. And the Lord says, I'm gonna do the evil that I've told you. See, the whole book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's been saying, evil's coming, you guys. The Babylonians are gonna trounce us and we're gonna suffer and it's gonna be horrible, Jeremiah said, but they hated Jeremiah. They punched him in the face and they threw him in, ju in dungeon. When this, when this story happens, Jeremiah is headed for prison for three years at least because the people hated his message. But as it turns out, it was God's message to the people. And it was just saying the Rechabites, well, it was a compare and a contrast. Did you see what the Lord compared the Rechabites and the people of Israel? The first comparison that we see is you have this dude named Jonadab, which we don't know much about other than he was a normal dude, sinful, just like all of us. But he told his kids what to do and they obeyed him. God the Father told his kids, the Jews, what to do and they disobeyed him. And they disobeyed him century after century. The Rehabites, they obeyed their father for 300 years straight. 
the Jews, for 850 years up to this point, they had constantly rebelled against God the Father in heaven. In the Rehabites, the Lord would reward their obedience. With the Jews, he would punish them for their disobedience. And the Lord uses this compare and contrast with these, these people, the Rechabites, who go down as obedient kids. And the Lord says, you guys are gonna be blessed because of your obedience. Interesting. You see, that object lesson was because the Jews just refused to do what the Lord asked them to do. And, and they rebelled against him century after century. Now, this is where this object lesson, as we New Testament Christian church, we read this Old Testament story. What does this mean for us? Is the Lord still requiring obedience? Does the Lord want us to obey? Now, this is good for us because do you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the law of Moses, uh, the Mosaic law. You know, if you read the first five books of the Old Testament, you see the law given to the Jews that includes stuff like, you know, don't eat bats, don't eat bacon. That's the worst one. Um, the Jews couldn't eat bacon. They, they had to keep the Sabbath. Um, they had to make sacrifice on the altars in Jerusalem at the temple. They had to keep the Yom Kippur and all these feasts and festivals and all this stuff. They had to do it, but they did not do it. Um, and, and so we talked about, are we still under the law of the Old Testament? The answer is no. We, we did a whole study on that. And so we say, okay, good, we're not under the law. And that was a great time to study that. But, but here's where Christianity gets a little fuzzy for people when it comes to this issue of obedience. How is a person saved? What is saved all about to begin with? I, I worry sometimes that Christians, we forget to tell people what we're talking about. Um, if you go up to a person on the street and point, hey, are you saved? And we know that means becoming a Christian. Yeah, but what, saved from what? Well, it's becoming a Christian so that you aren't judged for your sin. Well, what's judgment of sin? Hell and death, eternal death and hell. Is that something you'd like to be saved from? Man, I sure would. I don't wanna to go to hell for all eternity. That's to be unsaved. But when the Bible talks about salvation in this best sense, it's talking about being saved from hell. Here's the problem. I'm gonna give you the whole thing in a nutshell right here. We're all sinners. Every person on this planet, apart from Jesus, we've sinned. Bible says all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one person. And if you think you're righteous, that's even unrighteous right there. You're, you're sinful even in that. So we all have to acknowledge that we're, we've sinned, but the biggest problem is the cost of sin. The Bible in Romans, the Lord spells it out for us, the wages of sin is death. And not just kicking the bucket, being buried six feet under, pushing up daisies. The idea of death is eternal death and hell. The Bible talks more about hell than it does about heaven. It's, it's not, don't listen to these people say hell's not real and every, love wins in the end and everybody gets to go to heaven. That's just not what the Bible teaches, it's not even close. Read your Bible. The Bible says broad is the path that leads to destruction, hell, but narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. So you say, okay, so I'd like to be saved from hell and death and destruction. Well, good news, the God of the universe actually, as it turns out, loves you. For God so loved the world, even though you're a rascal, sinner, messed up person, you've fallen short, and we and you and me both, we deserve death and hell. God loves you, you little rascal. That's what the Lord says. I, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, that's hell, but have everlasting life. That's heaven. 
So when you say, do you wanna be saved? People need to know what you're talking about. Well, saved, if you believe the Bible, which I do, um, hell is real. You know, somebody means a movie about that. Hell, heaven, heaven is real. I saw that uh, trailer for that movie, Heaven is Real. And I'm sure some of you guys thought, but you know, the equal is true. Hell is real too. And we need to be saved from that. How are you saved? Well, that's it. God says, you guys are sinful. The cost of your sin is death. So I'm gonna send my only begotten son, Jesus. He'll come who lives perfectly. He's not a sinner. And he'll die on a cross for the sins of the whole world. And that's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins. Why? Because the old lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament didn't take away sin. Jesus would be the lamb that would take away the sins of the whole world. So that, excuse me, in Romans chapter 10, in talking about salvation, it says this, it says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that God raised him up from the dead. That is to believe you're a sinner, to understand that he died for my sins and that he was buried, but three days later rose again, like he said he would. Why is the raising from the dead so important? A lot of people made claims of things, religious gurus and stuff like that. Nobody made this claim. If you destroy this body three days later, I'll raise it up from the dead. Jesus made that claim. And when Jesus died a brutal death on the cross, they buried him in a tomb and they, he rose three days later, proving his claim of who he was. Well, how do we know it was really, he really rose from the dead? More than 500 eyewitness accounts written of in the scriptures that saw Jesus after he died and rose. And those people that saw him were willing to die bloody, brutal, torturous deaths, not denying the truth that Jesus died and rose from the grave. It's an amazing thing that happened in history that turned the whole world upside down. When Jesus came and died on the cross, rose from the grave, everything changed in the world. That's why billions of people have followed Jesus from that day forward. So good news, you and I, we don't go to hell because guess what? If we accept Christ and believe in our heart, Jesus, that he died, that he rose from the he says, you will be saved. That is your sins are forgiven. Well, what about repentance? Yep, you gotta repent of your sins. Repentance means to acknowledge your sins before God and say, Lord, I am a sinner and I deserve punishment, but you took my punishment for me. Well, Brett, I think repentance means that you gotta have all your sins taken care of and conquered, that you need to have them all conquered. Well, good luck being saved if that's the rule. Because the longer I'm a Christian, I like Paul the apostle, I start to say, man, I, I, the longer I've been a Christian, the more far I realize I am from literal righteousness. Remember Paul at his old age said, oh, I, Paul, I do the things I don't wanna do and I don't do the things I do wanna do. Oh, who's gonna deliver me from this death? And then he says, but I thank Jesus Christ. Who's Jesus? The one who took the sins and took that penalty for sin on our behalf. So that's why we call it good news or the fancy Christian word gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for the sins of the world. How are you saved? Do you have to earn it? No. Do you have to deserve it? None of us can do that. It's a free gift. That's why it's called grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The word grace means undeserved, unearned favor that God wants to show to you. And Ephesians chapter two, verse eight says, you're saved by grace through faith, not of your works, lest any man should boast. Okay, now are you guys still with me so far? 
That's the gospel message. You gotta accept Christ, be saved, forgiven, saved by his grace. You didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it. But then why does the Bible teach that we're supposed to be obedient to God's word? Obedience, and, and how does that play into the New Testament church? If we don't have to keep the law of the Old Testament, man, we're free. Brad, I'm saved by God's grace, and right after church, I'm gonna go do some meth. Because I'm saved by grace. Well, Paul anticipated such stupidity. And Paul said, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? What was his answer, anybody? God forbid, or may it never be. That's what he said. In other words, when you're saved by God's grace, you don't just use his grace as a doormat to wipe your muddy feet, sinful muddy feet, and say, okay, thanks for saving me, and think you're all good to go. No, we're saved by God's grace through faith. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, but... People struggle with this. Well, what about James, Brett? James said this, faith without works is dead. So you gotta do good works if you wanna be saved. And so some you know, religious groups try to say, you gotta, hopefully your good outweighs your bad and maybe you'll make it to heaven. That's false teaching. You and I are saved by grace, period. But listen, James and Paul aren't disagreeing. It's not like James said, Paul's wrong, faith you know, without works is dead, so Paul was wrong. That's not what James is saying. They complement one another. When you're saved by grace through faith, one of the natural things that will happen to you is God will start to work in your heart and stir in your life a conscience. Remember the new covenant that we taught about a few weeks ago? The new covenant said, I will write not on tables of stone, but I will write on the tables of men's hearts my will. What is that? that the Lord would give you sort of a conscience to know what to do. I like to call it a knower. You got a knower, hopefully between those ears and ears, you got a knower. It's your conscience. What is your conscience? It's that part that the Lord tells you, that's just not right. Let's see here, I'm a married man and I've got this lady at work that she kind of digs me and she wants to go out and, and uh, have uh, drinks after work and, and uh, it seems like she's sort of coming on to me. Should I do this thing? And your knower says, you are an idiot. <laughs> and that's called sin. And you don't wanna do that. The Lord, he put that knower in you just like the, the, the birds know how to fly south for the winter. Who told them that? God did, instinctively. And I believe under the new covenant, a lot of what we know, man, the Lord already told, tells you in your heart, should I steal these funds from the bank? No, that's wrong. It's immoral, it's wrong. Not only that, we have God's word in black and white that even tells us outside of the law of Moses, we have other things. The Bible says this is called sin and this is called righteousness. And so you and I in New Testament times, we're not saved by you know, making sure we never sin again, none of us would be saved if that were the case. But once you are saved, it's not faith and works that saves you. It's not faith or works that saves you, it's faith that works that you're saved by. It's, it's the faith that you have just saying, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave and I accept the free gift of salvation and you're saved. But when you're saved, works will be evidence of that salvation that happens. It's not that you're gonna be perfect or even be amazing. You're not gonna be instantly Mother Teresa, um, you know, once you accept Christ. But the Lord will start to stir your heart to do the right thing and to make better choices and to be obedient to his word. Now I've gotta say this, and this makes people nervous, but oh well. 
If you're a person, yeah, I accepted Christ when I was in kindergarten, I said yes to Jesus and raised my hand, and so I'm saved by God's grace. But I'm still you know, looking at porn online, and I'm sleeping with everybody I can find, and I'm kind of drinking and doing meth, and uh, pretty much uh, I, I follow Hitler's worldview. If that's you, can I guarantee that you're saved? Because in kindergarten you said, yes, I believe in Jesus. Well, here's the problem. Maybe you never really did believe. Maybe it was never really from your heart. Maybe uh, we're not seeing good works in your life. So there's evidence that maybe you never really were saved. But the person who's truly saved, you will see there'll be start to be slow changes where they're no longer you know, wanting to do the wrong thing, but at least trying to do the right thing with failure even included. So when you become a Christian, it's not that you're gonna be perfect, it's that you're perfectly forgiven, but then your heart will start to change. That's a natural byproduct of becoming a Christian. So to answer this question about obedience, when does the New Testament church that's saved by grace through faith, not of our works, when is obedience part of the equation? When you're a Christian. Now, here's the funny thing about this obedience thing. These, these Rechabites are obedient and the Jews are not, but we can learn from these people. Um, we can learn a few New Testament lessons from these people. Let's just note three of them, and then we'll start to pack things up and call it a day. The first of the three is, notice with me that they were tent dwellers. Did you know that tent dwelling is a big deal in the Bible? Um, who else in the Bible for a season were tent dwellers, anybody? Yeah, the Jews, Israel. After they left Egypt, they went, do you remember the first stop after they left Egypt? They went to a little town called Sukkot. Well, what was Sukkot? Does anybody know, for you Bible scholars out there, what does the name Sukkot mean, anybody? Tents. They went to a town called Sukkot, tent town. Now, whether it was a place where it was just full of tents, or if it was a place where they actually manufactured tents, I don't know. But the Jews, after they left Egypt, they needed some tents because they were for the next 40 years gonna wander in the wilderness and they needed some tents. And at Sukkot, they, had, they got all their tents at Tent Town. Great stuff. Now, they wandered for 40 years. Do you remember what happened though when they came into the promised land and they packed up their tents and said, oh, glad we don't have to live in those tents for you know, any longer. 40 years is a long time to go camping. <laughs> they did that. But do you remember what the Lord told them? God said, listen, you guys, I want you to have a feast one of those festivals that is a Jewish feast called Sukkot. Uh, what is it called? Well, a lot of us in, in Americans, we call it the Feast of Tabernacles. But it's really the Feast of Tents. That's why it's called Sukkot. And if you go to Jerusalem today on the Feast of Tabernacles, what you'll find is everybody in their backyard have set up little lean-tos and little tents and tarps and stuff. And they celebrate and they remember the time that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years in tents. And why? Why did the Lord want them to do that? And, and why do they still do that thousands of years later? Because the Lord wanted them to remember that they're strangers and pilgrims, strangers in a strange land, that this world is not their home. It's almost like the Lord wanted them to not be so planted here, but to remember that there's something bigger in the future that God had in store. So this idea of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would all get their tents and remind their children, this is when we all lived in tents. And, um, and then in the New Testament, that theme continues, that you and I are also supposed to have that sort of temporary dwelling mindset. 
Um, that's an interesting question. Are you dug in here in this world? Oh man, I love this life and I love this world and I live for this world. If you're doing that, is, has your world been shaken? I think the people that are really planted in this world and in our nation as Americans and our homes and our cars, 2020 was a year that kind of shook people's little situation up because things aren't always so sure. Businesses going out of business because of all the lockdowns and people upset and our nation divided. People are wondering what's gonna happen on Wednesday for crying out loud. There's more armed military soldiers in the state capital than there are in all of Afghanistan and Iraq combined. Does that cause anybody concern for our nation? We're living in this crazy time. And I don't know about you, but I'm feeling more and more like a stranger and a pilgrim in a strange land. I don't feel quite as comfy and at home as, as I was when I was an American kid in the 1970s, when things were all good and rosy and all this stuff. Now you're kind of like, man, our world is kind of tweaking out. I wonder if the Lord does that on purpose. Did you know that in the New Testament, we have that same kind of language? Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. I'll read it to you. 1 Peter 2, 11 says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from all fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And he goes on and talks about how, you know, there's other people that are doing all kinds of evil, but by your good works, you'll be behold the Lord and glorify God. You know, that's the thing. We're, we're called to be strangers and pilgrims in this land, not too seated, you know, permanently here. It was Jesus who said, man, don't lay up for yourself treasure on this earth where moth and rust and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead of you. That's what the Lord says. Paul the apostle would tell the church to the Colossae Christians, he'd say, listen, don't let your affection be things on this earth, but set your affections on things above, that is heavenly. Because this world is temporary. This life is short, life is but a vapor. Don't get too planted and settled here, but live with a bigger picture in mind. You and I are also called to be tent dwellers in that sense, not to be too planted. That was Jonadab's whole reason for telling the Rechabites, hey, I want you to live in tents because I don't want you to get too comfy, too settled here and now with this people. You're a strange people. You're called out people. So we can learn from these Rechabites for saying, you know what, we, we need to kind of have that same sort of temporary mindset uh, that we're not here on this life and this earth forever. They were committed to being tent dwellers. But number two, I observe, they were committed to discipline. The Rechabites go down in history, even though they're unknown for virtually anything else, they go down in history as a disciplined bunch who say, man, we will not drink wine. We will not live in houses and have vineyards. And they're commended by the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah here for their discipline. See, the problem is discipline often goes out the window for us modern day Christians because we're saved, we're saved by grace. It's all good. Freedom in Christ, which we do have, but we throw discipline out the window and, and doing what God wants us to do. So we just take up sin and do it. And we think, whatever, I'm saved by grace. And this is why we have to remember why doing the right thing, doing a biblical thing, uh, you could say it this way, not sinning. Sin, by the way, by definition, it's not just murder and adultery, it's those things. We, I think people wrongly think sin is the big ones. If you kill someone, that's sin. If you commit, that's sin. commit adultery. But did you know sin could be having just a, 
You're driving on the road and you have a little bit of a bad attitude about the person driving in front of you. That's called sin. The wages of sin is death. If that's the only sin you ever did, believe it or not, in God's economy, that sin is, I don't agree with that. Who cares? God's the one who makes the rules. And God said, if you sin, the wage of that sin is death. So then now that we're saved, our sins are forgiven and we're Christian, why should we even try to do good stuff? Well, there, there's the, the part that's so important to understand. And I've said it this way a million times. You know, sin is not bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. Uh, you parents know what I'm talking about. Now, Johnny, you're two years old and I really don't want you to stick your tongue in the electrical outlet. Now, why I want to stick my tongue in there? It's tasty in there. Mm -hmm. And mom and dad, if they love that child, they will say, no, I will not allow you to stick your tongue in that electrical outlet. Why? Because most parents don't want to see their kids electrocuted. That's a pretty good parent that would say no to them and deny them the access for their tongue into the electrical outlet. Now, that's a ridiculous example, but is it more ridiculous when God says, listen, um, you guys that uh, are, are living together outside of marriage, you're not married, but you're living together and having sex. No. Oh, God just doesn't want us to have fun. No, God knows you're sticking your tongue in an electrical outlet. He knows that living together before you're married, I know this, some of you are like, Brett, you're so old fashioned. Yeah, call me old fashioned, but you can also call that biblical. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter seven talks about how um, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What, Brett, you mean like this? No, not like that. The word touch there is like a romantic, sensual kind of touch. It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication. Now stop for a second. The word fornication, Greek word, porneia. Uh, porneia is anything that is sexually immoral. Porneia, the Greek word. It's where we get our dumb word pornography, like geography and sociology and pornography, like it's some science. But it's actually just, we used to call it when I was a kid, smut. But now it's pornography. Are some of you pornographists? Hopefully not, because that sex outside of the marriage boundary. See, in 1 Corinthians 7, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but to, to avoid fornication, sexual immorality. Let every man have his own wife and every wife have her own husband. See, I know this is old fashioned, but the Bible says anything that's sexual inside of a marriage, and, and for those of you that are public school, one marriage, not multiple marriages, Anything that, that, uh, that is, you know, monogamy doesn't mean one at a time. I'm just trying to help you guys out here because our culture is so wacko. But anything that's outside of marriage that's sexual is called porneia, fornication. Anything that's sexual inside of a, of a marriage relationship, the Bible says the marriage bed is undefiled. So here's one example of something that our culture says, God, we don't, we don't care about what you say. We're gonna do whatever we want. We're gonna sleep together. We're gonna sleep around. Hey, we gotta try the plumbing to make sure it works before we're married. The plumbing works, Einstein. I'm just telling you, it just works. God's the one who made your bodies. He made it work. It's kind of amazing. Um, it's, it's amazing how stupid we are. Oh, but, I, but you say, Brett, you're just being legalistic and rule-oriented. No, the Bible teaches us to be obedient when it comes to Pornea, 
sexual immorality in the world. And even the Christian church largely today is like, yeah, whatever. Are we like the Jews who just kind of shook, shook their fist at God and we're gonna worship Baal and we're gonna keep our slaves? It's the same thing that if we're not careful, we could be doing and we say, I'm saved by grace or faith, but I'm gonna keep sleeping with my girlfriend or I'm gonna keep you know, doing this or that sin that the Bible says is, and calls sin. Why does God call that bad? For example, the young couple living together before they're married. Why is that called sin? It's not because he wants to ruin your fun or make it harder on you. Brad, it's too hard financially. Uh, we, ha we had to combine our checking and we, we pay for the same apartment. It's cheaper, it's more affordable. Yeah, that's just an excuse to keep your sin going. But, but the Lord says, don't do that because it's gonna be bad for you. It's gonna hurt you. You know what's amazing about the whole living together before people are married? If you look at the secular statistics on it, this isn't even the Bible, your odds of ending up in divorce and disaster in marriage go up exponentially if you lived together before you were married. Who understood, who would have guessed that? God, the one who made your body and made your emotional psyche and all that stuff. And he said, listen, if you want your situation to work out, don't live together before you're married. If you wanna be in total disaster and see your marriage end up in destruction, then go ahead and live together. But I would say, no, that's called sin. Sin means to miss the mark, be off course of what God has for you. It's not that he's trying to ruin the fun. He loves you so much, like the parent who doesn't want the child to stick their tongue in the, in the electrical socket. The Lord's saying, don't do these sinful things. And man, we could go on and on about what the Bible calls sin. And what's so funny to me is if you look at all the secular studies about all these things that, you know, that, uh, that the Bible calls sin, as it turns out long-term, they all kind of mess you up. If it's called sin in the Bible, you can study it, it ends up messing you up long-term. Isn't it funny how the sexual revolution of the 60s, we all celebrated that. Man, freedom, sex, love, and all that stuff. And then suddenly came AIDS, HIV, and, uh, and then, you know, and, and sexually transmitted diseases have been around since Bible times. I don't know if you follow the news, have you heard of the most recent gonorrhea? This is a fun topic for church. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, there was a big study that came out showing that there's a new strain of gonorrhea that is untreatable and the medicines and the antibiotics and stuff don't work anymore. And it's this very horrible strain that's causing all kinds of people massive pain and suffering. And they don't know what to do about it. I know what to do, it's called abstinence. It's what the Bible prescribed. No wonder sexually transmitted diseases have gone rampant around the world. You know, when I was a kid in, in, uh, in, in high school, there were like, you know, um, six sexually transmitted diseases. Today, there's over 80. It's an amazing difference, you know? And back when I was in high school, they'd say, you know, say, oh, you're sleeping around, okay, you got, got an STD, whatever, uh, take a shot and you're good to go, a little penicillin, a little Depro or whatever, you're good to go. Nowadays, it, it could cost you like your life. Like sex, some sexually transmitted diseases are even deadly. And yet we still say, we want sex, we want sex. And we want it the way we want it. And so we're gonna do it. And all the while, this loving father in heaven saying, actually, I created you guys and here's the way sex is beautiful and wonderful and meant to be. It's within the boundary of a husband and a wife. That's just one example. I could give you hundreds, but we don't have time. But is obedience still a thing? The answer is yes. 
So, you know, it's, it's all about obedience. In fact, um, you know, we, we've looked at, first of all, they were tent dwellers. Number two, they were committed to discipline. But number three, and this is how we end it, they were passionate about obedience. Have you ever noticed that there's some people that are so passionate about things that are lesser than your faith? You know, oftentimes the people of God are put to shame. Christians are put to shame by the dedication that other people show to lesser causes. YouTube is one example of that. Like, what about the guy that has his backyard? Have you seen the YouTube where they, they get this little contraption where they roll a ball and it goes down a channel and then it falls and plops into water and the water splash makes this other thing move up and then that thing tips another bit of dominoes and dominoes go around the, and, and it takes this little thing. You're like, wow. And then eventually it tips over the squirrel feeder and feeds the squirrel. The guy just spent three years of his life passionate about a squirrel feeding contraption. Like I'm amazed, you know, and even fun stuff. Some of you like, you know, look at a Green Bay Packer fan, paint his body yellow and green and ah, and have cheese on his head. Woohoo! passionate about the Packers. That's great, Packers are great. But it's funny when it comes to things that we really should be passionate about that are more important. I mean, there's even some good stuff. Some of you athletes are passionate, you get up early, and you run and you lift weights and you train and you wanna get better at your, your sport. That's great. But I'm always amazed at how people are so passionate about things that, well, someday your athleticism is gonna go out the window. And someday you're gonna to be too old to do that stuff. And someday you're gonna die. And more importantly, where are you gonna go? North or south? Heaven or hell? And that's something you should be passionate about more than whatever it is that we were about, you know, our diet or our working out or more than, you know, our squirrel feeder in the backyard. Whatever it is that you're into, is it as important as being passionate about obedience to the Lord? So these guys, these Rechabites are an amazing example of people that were passionate about obedience. And I, I'm just gonna run through some quick scripture here and then wrap it up. Listen to what 1 Peter chapter one says in verse 13. This is New Testament. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So man, be hopeful because of God's grace. We already talked about what that means. But then it says, but do this as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. You know, before you were saved, before you knew that that was even called sin. Now that you're saved, man, don't go to those former lusts. But listen, as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because as it is written, be holy as I am holy. Lord is holy and the Lord says, I want you to be holy too. Not to ruin your fun, but to keep you where you need to be, to keep you safe and happy and blessed. Jesus said, blessed in, this is the Sermon on the Mount, this is a big deal, Matthew chapter five. Jesus said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. Do you want a full, filled life? Because you know, the opposite is true as well. Not blessed are those which hunger and thirst after unrighteousness, sinful things, for they shall be empty. How many of us have lived enough life to know that those lustful deceits and those things that we thought were gonna be so satisfying, man, they were so empty and left you feeling empty. And here the Lord who created you says, man, if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, not sinfulness, 
I will fill you up. Holiness always leads to happiness. Jesus said, when they asked, a lawyer came up to him in Matthew 22 and said, which is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus said, first one is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus said. I love how Jesus kind of boils it down. You know, uh, what are we supposed to do? Love God and love people. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the Bible calls us to do. I love that because, um, you know, anything opposite of that is missing the mark, sinfulness. And that's one of the ones that I feel like our culture, our world has greatly forgotten and lost. I see so much of a lack of love today. Man, we need to be, as Christians, we need to be not the most conspiratorial. We should not be the most political. We should not be the most militant. We should not be the most smarty pants. What are we called to be? We're called to be the most loving people. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, by your politics? No, by your love one for another. How are we doing? Are you being obedient on that most basic fundamental? As you kind of assess how you treated people and how you thought about people this last week, are you, are you obedient to that? For those of you that were here last week, I gave you a challenge, um, the screen time challenge. Okay, moment of honesty. Those of you that were here last week, how many of you guys took up the screen time challenge? Raise your hand. Nice. You guys beat the second service, but not even close to the eight o'clock. The eight o'clockers, it was like more than half the people took. How many of you guys were successful in cutting your screen time uh, in half? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four. That's great. That's great. Good for you guys. I was close. I think there's still a few minutes and maybe if I, if I leave my phone alone right now, I might make it to 50%, but I'm, I'm just, I, I, yesterday I went a little over. But it was hard. I took the challenge myself, it was hard. Uh, but, but, but I learned so much about how, well, actually my screen time is kind of more valuable than I thought. Uh, I'm getting some work done. But I also found what a great thing to be able to give that other time. The challenge was to cut your screen time in half and spend the other time in prayer in the word. And you know, as I, as I attempted to do that last week, um, man, I just felt so good being able to give more time to prayer. And there was almost this knee jerk. I felt myself reach for the phone. I'm like, nope, I'm gonna pray. And it was really healthy for me to do that. And I hope it was for you too. But here's the thing, for all of you that raised your hand at first, but didn't on the second, are you feeling guilty now? <laughs> Sinner. No, 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 wait. See, that's the beautiful thing. You and I, we're Christians and we do sin and we fall short and we make mistakes, but I'm so thankful See, here's how we kind of wrap this up. Yes, you and I are called to obedience. And, and the reason we're supposed to obey is not because God just wants you to obey, it's because he wants you to do well. And he loves you as a loving father. So he gives you rules that are gonna be helpful for your happiness. Holiness needs to happiness. But your salvation is not affected by your failure or success in your good deeds. Your salvation is based on the cross, the finished work of Jesus Christ. I hope you're seeing the difference here. Salvation through the cross, and then the result of that should be a people that say, Lord, I wanna follow you. I wanna do good works, and I wanna 
break off sinful behaviors in my life. And I wanna be successful in the things you want me to do. But when you fall short, I've got some really good news. And this is how I end it. First John chapter one, verse nine says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You may have failed in your screen time challenge, as did I probably. Um, and you know, I fail every day. Do I beat myself up? No. I'm thankful that I can go back to the cross and say, Lord, when you died on the cross, you died for all my sins, past, present, and future. The Hebrews says you, you, you died once for all. And so I can be forgiven and have a brand new start right now, right here. And then I can start out a new day, every day is new. How long does the Lord's mercy last, anybody? Forever, over and over in the Bible, my mercy endureth forever. That's the good news of the gospel. So what I'd like to do is, um, you know, maybe as I sound a little more like a preacher today, because I am one, um, maybe some of you are feeling a little fire and brimstone. Man, you're talking about living together and sin and stuff, and I'm feeling kind of guilty. Good. <laughs> but you know what's great about that is you can take that sin now and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to change my mind and my attitude about that sin and go the opposite direction.